Welcome to the No Rain, No Rainbows podcast. This is a show about pushing through obstacles and hard times in order to live a happy and fulfilled life. I'm your host, Ted Fayton, and it's a pleasure to have you joining us. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's grow. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the No Rain, No Rainbows podcast. As always, thank you for taking the time to join us today. We know it's going to be a good one. And a big shout out to my executive producer, Andre Suttles, Subtle Solution Media, for helping to make this podcast possible. All right. We got a great episode for you guys coming today. I am excited to introduce you to founder and chief motivating officer at Ignite the Dream Coaching and Consulting. Joining us out of Vancouver, Canada, we have Sam Thiara on the call, man. How you doing, Sam? Doing well, Ted. I look forward to being able to you know, be a part of this and uh, I look forward to being able to engage with you and provide some insights to your audience. Absolutely. And I appreciate you taking the time to join us. And I like to give our audience and the guests an opportunity to get introduced to each other. So a uh, quick introduction on, on who you are. Please feel free to address the audience personally and let them know who you are and what you do. Yeah. And I like the way you said who I am and not what I do in that sequence, because who is really the important part. The way I can describe myself of who I am is there are five things that guide and direct me in life. Servant leadership, story sharing, activator, igniter, champion enabler, and community do-gooder. Those five things have enabled me to help individuals, teams, organizations, educational institutions, as well as nonprofits to their pinnacle best. But those five things have also guided me. So I'm a speaker and a storyteller, a mentor and a coach, a writer, an author, problem solver, educator, as well as a community activator. That's the best way for me to sort of answer that question, mm-hmm. but that gives you a really good description of who this person is. Yeah. And what I love about the description, because I do this at the beginning of every episode, I, I let the guest introduce themselves. And a lot of times they go through their story, their upbringing, mm-hmm. and, and then their eventual title or what their current mission or dream is in life. Mm-hmm. The way you answered has to be some of the most clarity I've heard mm-hmm. in an answer, which shows me that you've done the work to get there. That work can look different for so many people, but let's say someone listening right now, or even myself included, looking to embark on that journey, what are some of the first steps to figuring exactly who I am out? Yeah. And Ted, you know, to be fair, I mean, my life started out the standard corporate job. You know, there were a lot of bumps and, you know, bruises along the way to (laughs) discover who I am. But what I found is the moment that I stopped looking at what I was doing and realized who I am, clarity emerged. And the way that that happened is I looked at it and the way I describe it is every single person in my office is wearing a 52 short suit Hmm. in a sort of a, a visual way, I guess you could say. And the challenge is the 52 short suit doesn't fit me. If I'm talking about it as a career, as a 52 short suit, it doesn't fit me, but I can wear it. I can do it. What I realized is when I started focusing on who I am, I started fashioning a tailored suit, a tailored career, a tailored life. And the way I did that is to ask myself, okay, what does all this mean to me? Who am I? And what I found is when I started focusing on the things I'm not willing to compromise in life and career, not career, Mm -hmm. but life and career, that's where those five core elements emerged. And that's what I call them is the five core elements. 
what are the five things that I am not willing to compromise in life and career? And they've changed over time. So the ones I gave you for my introduction are the latest iterations of who I am. But the realization was that when I nailed down the original five core elements, I realized I'm wearing a 52 short suit as a career. It's not fitting. I could do the job, but it just doesn't fit. And then it guided me into the journey. And I will tell you, once you nail five out of five, Mm -hmm. you don't have a job and career. You hit fulfillment. The way that you find these five core elements, it's a lot of reflection, a lot of introspection. Ask yourself, you know, what am I not willing to compromise? And a way that you can realize that is look at the jobs you've either got currently or had. What do you like about them? What do you not like about it? But ask yourself the critical part of why. Why do I not like this or why does this resonate? What courses did you do? What courses did you really like and didn't like? Why? And then finally, what do you like to do in your spare time, social life? Why? And when you start answering those whys, it guides you. So for example, oftentimes what I get is when I work with people on this exercise, Mm -hmm. the first thing they'll say is one thing I'm not willing to compromise is family. And they say, why is family so important to you? And they'll say, well, it's, you know, those relationships, it's the connectedness. And I'm like, okay, now does the relationship and connectedness also apply to your work environment? Mm. Yeah. Does it apply to your, when you were a student? Oh, of course. What about in your social life? And they're like, oh, absolutely. I'm like, okay, can we replace family with relationships and connectedness, and then use that as one of the five core elements so that in anything that you do, that's going to be one of your cornerstones. And they're like, oh, I get it. Mm. So that's where how you sort of work towards it. And the only thing I will also share on that is people are fearful. I'm making them pick five things. What if they're not the right words? Do you know what? You're always able to change and shift and maneuver once you're in that process because, you know, as you grow in your responsibilities and in your jobs, you may realize you have to change the words. So don't be afraid to to nail down the words and then modify and change it as you go along. But that's how I would recommend it. I was going to have that exact follow-up question in terms of, you know, some people might be afraid of committing to those five things. And when you touched on the fact that they change, there was the question of how often they change. Mm -hmm. I think there's a level of intentionality behind focusing on those five. And I kind of get the air of when you mentioned the love of family, Mm -hmm. one thing I've also noticed, and I've seen this a lot in some of my friends who are still back home. I love New York. You could take the boy out of New York, but you can't take New York out of me. I have a lot of friends who are like, you know, I'm only here because of family. And it's almost like taking the control out of their placement in life and putting it in someone else's hands. But when you Mm -hmm. change it to relationships and connectedness, it's almost like taking some of that control back. How does the focus on those five help in terms of the responsibility one can take for their own lives and some of the fruits that might come from doing that work? Yeah, because now what happens is you have something to balance any opportunities that emerge, whether it's a career, whether it's education, whether it's being an entrepreneur, you now compare it and realize, wait, this hits. Like, for example, being an educator at university, I mean, 
Ted, that was never something I had ever visioned in my life. Being an author who wrote, you know, who's written two books, never was anything that I had ever thought about. But as slowly as these things crept into my life, I actually applied it to those five things. And, you know, teaching at university hits five out of five. Mm -hmm. Writing these books hit five out of five. I'm like, I have to do it. And the thing is, I have fulfillment when I do it. It doesn't feel like a job or a task. A lot of the things that I work on, and there's about 12 projects I'm working on right now, but they're all, it's not like they're so separated and, you know, I'm just running around everywhere. They actually layer in. Mm. So my speaking layers into my teaching, which layers into my writing, which layers into my mentorship and coaching. So they're not so unique and distinct and separated, but they're also somewhat in a position where they're related, but it allows me to be able to put a lot of effort into what I do, but I can pull from those other areas. But that's really the way that I would look at it is, is how that impacts those different areas. Yeah. It's kind of the life by design. And yeah. I've told my wife this many times, it's almost like, I think we can get paid to live. And when I say get paid to live, it's it's matching our natural desires with a skill set and something that the world needs and something you can get paid for. And it doesn't have to be an exorbitant amount, just maybe enough to get by and pay your bills. Yeah. Living in that journey is definitely something that I always compare this to. When you learn the secret, you want to share the secret. And part of your ability to write and share your journey is so that maybe others can benefit from the labor that you've done. And that's a lot in terms of kind of your personal experiences, why you articulate it so well. Mm-hmm. How can we learn to get that level of communication and communicate yeah. some of the lessons, communicate some of the hardships and some of the warnings along the way? Yeah, no. And and to your point about one of the quotes that I live by, which actually really taps into what you just said is I ask people, are you earning a living or are you actually living? Mm. And the idea is if you are actually really living, you can earn that living as well because you're doing something that is very authentic. I mean, my realization is that the other quote that I think is really important is obstacles are the necessary bricks on the road to my success. And those things I encountered, those obstacles were actually really necessary to help me become who I am today. I mean, think of it this way. I mean, I graduated from you know university many, many years ago with a degree in business and political science. And I remember sitting at the graduation ceremony saying, actually, you know, that's a great combination. Who's lucky to get me? And I walked across the stage, shook the hands of the dignitaries. And I remember this giant virtual door just slammed behind me because everything familiar to me was behind that door. My classes, my schedule, you know, the friends and that whole environment. And I sat down saying, okay, now I guess I have to do what we all do. I have to look for work. Mm-hmm. And now back then there, the internet wasn't there as well as email. You actually had to handwrite or type these letters, hand deliver it or mail them. Mm-hmm. And I still remember sitting there and I sent out 12 letters to companies that I thought, okay, who's lucky to get me? Two weeks later, a letter arrived back. I opened it up. It said, sorry, we don't have a job for you, but good luck in your search. And I thought, okay, you're not lucky. It's okay. I've got 11 letters out there. I'm going to send three more. And Ted, it became like the tide. The more letters I sent out, the more letters came back. And what I have are 86 rejection letters from companies 
who turned me down, who said, we don't know what you're looking for. We don't have a job for you, but good luck. And, you know, really, I mean, it's the size of a brick, these 86 letters. Mm -hmm. And every single letter was a nail in my coffin of self-confidence because it just said I wasn't ready. And it turned out that instead of, you know, who's lucky to get me, it turned to, am I lucky to get a job? Well, somebody gambled on me. Finally, somebody gambled. And I got a job and it was an entry-level government job. I mean, think of it, political science and business, obviously, entry-level government is your first job. Well, the first job was actually being a janitor, mopping floors and emptying rubbish bins in a hospital. That was my first job out of university hmm. because it's a government job. Yeah. Now, the thing to keep in mind, though, is I never looked at it as a negative. Instead, I said, what am I going to learn? So there were three lessons that I pulled from it. And it sort of guides me to your question earlier about sharing. The first lesson was my father said, I don't care what you do. You better do the best job possible because your reputation is on the line. Well, at the end of my shift, there was no rubbish bin left full and no floor that was cleaner than the floors I had done. I put pride into my work. And that carries me to who I am today because I put that much effort and quality into anything I do. Second valuable lesson. I used to get on the elevator with nurses, doctors, administrators, professionals, and I'd be ignored because you're not a professional. I know what this feels like. This is why I talk to everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your journey is. You need to sit down and talk with me. I will make time for you. Third valuable lesson. Rather than looking at it as an absolute, which oftentimes we do, of I've got a degree and I'm mopping floors. No, what can I learn from this that potentially can help me in the future? And it made me realize that in anything we do, there is a learning capacity and a possibility for us. Those three lessons still carries me to who I am today. And Ted, to be brutally honest, if one of those letters would have materialized, I wouldn't be with you today because my life would have gone in a different trajectory. Mm-hmm. And I look at those letters and many of those companies no longer exist. I still do. I outlasted me. Your listeners are going to outlast those. But rejection is part of this. But what it enables me to do is along the way, all of these setbacks have provided me stories, have provided me experiences. Life has given me a tremendous amount of things to share, but I'm not allowed to hold on to them. And the more I share, the more comes back to me. And it's just one of those, it's not, I don't do it because, okay, great. I know something bigger is going to come back to me. I just know I have to share. I'm not allowed to keep all of this experience. I'm not allowed to keep all of this knowledge or insights. I have to share it. That's, that's what I do. Yeah. And I think that's what we're all here to do is, is kind of sharing our experiences. And you kind of perfectly depicted the no rain, no rainbow story where every raindrop helps the flower grow. We love the sunshine, but it's the rain that provides the nourishment and, and the yeah. nutritious value that becomes the growth that we seek so much. So yeah. even though those rejection letters kept coming in, you kept sending out the applications because yeah. that was the path of growth. And so many times we could take that personally when failure is on our doorstep. Yep. And it almost becomes, at least from my experience, it was almost defining like mm-hmm. a failure was, okay, 
is this the definition of me? Am I a failure because X did not turn out the way I wanted it to? And, and it does, yeah. it does eat away at your self-confidence. In the journey of regaining that self-confidence, there was a lot of finding myself and finding my identity. And, and I know you've had that personal journey as well in terms of from a cultural aspect too. What was that like? Because as someone who grew up going to Catholic school their whole lives, and I was the kid who was too black for the white kids, but too white for the black kids. So I had that struggle myself. What was that journey like for you as you kind of delved deeper into it? So Ted, a lot of us struggle with this aspect of identity as you just shared. And I mean, think of it this way. I'm a British born Canadian. My parents come from Fiji Islands near Australia and my grandparents come from India. Who am I? And it's not uncommon. I mean, physically, if you look at me, I look Indian. And then people would be like, what part of India are you from? And I'm like, well, I was born in England and raised in Canada. They're like, no, 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 your parents, what part of India? Well, my parents come from Fiji, near Australia. And they're like, wait, are you Indian? And then I'm like, well, I guess I am because, I mean, some of my ancestors come from India. And then they're like, no, no, you're Canadian. So it's like, really, who am I with regards to this identity piece? Or the other one I get is, no, really, where are you from? It's like, well, how do you describe that? So I can relate to this. And a lot of people, I find, uh, struggle with that identity piece. I mean, and we talk about third culture. I've got four cultures because I've got this unique identity. And I remember years ago, because as I grew up in Canada, I mean, I left England when I was only four years old. So my life has really been Canadian. And I do really define myself as Canadian. I mean, hey, we play hockey. We eat hot dogs, we scrape our knee and we bleed maple syrup. I mean, how more Canadian can you be, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I guess there was this thing of, you know, growing up in Canada, in primary school, there was only two or three visible minorities in my school. And in high school, which had about 600 students, there literally was about seven or eight visible minorities and everybody else was like white Canadian. And you start assuming that role of Canadian until, you know, you're a grade eight student and you're walking in the hall and a grade 12 student just pounds you, says, I don't like Indians. And I'm like, but I'm Canadian. And he says, no, you're Indian. And you really struggle with that. Mm -hmm. It's when I got to university and a much more broader global audience, I suddenly realized this is something I'm hungry for is realizing my identity because that part was missing in my life. Because my, my friends who were from India or Pakistan would share their food, share their culture, share their, you know, the way life is. And it made me realize that's a part I was missing. So in 2004, I went on a journey to India with my wife. Part of it was to find my identity, but also nobody knew where our ancestral roots were. And really all I had to go by was the name of the village, the town it's about six miles away from, and the district, and a faded photograph of the people from my village. That's it. Huh. <laughs> and it's a it's about three and a half inches by three and a half. It's dingy orange. You can barely make the people out. But, you know, I was a foreigner going to India to a land that shouldn't be foreign to me in search of a needle in a haystack but not knowing where the haystack was. And that's the best way for me to describe the story, which I then wrote into a book. Well, the identity piece was interesting because I had an epiphany while I was in India. India was 
an amazing experience. I don't think anything will ever prepare anybody for me for India. But the epiphany I had was my life was always what I call a tali. And a tali is a platter with segmented dishes. I'm British, mm-hmm. Indian, Canadian, Fijian. I've been in an Irish military pipe band. So, hey, there's a bit of Irish chutney mixed in, in in that platter as well. But the epiphany I had was instead of this tali and segmenting my life into those different backgrounds and cultures, I'm a rice dish called kitchari. And kitchari is this blend of flavors. You go to your fridge, you add the vegetables to the rice, and you add all the spices and everything. But it's this flavorful, seasoned blend of flavors. It's the equivalent of, let's say, making an omelet. It made me realize I'm kitchari. But all of us are kitchari. All of us have this blend of flavors, and we can embrace them all. The journey to find my ancestral roots, though, with just that faded photograph, because it was also part of that identity piece. I wanted to to find this because no one else had ever really found it except for my dad's older brother, but he passed away many years ago before anyone could ever realize where this village was. And it wasn't an easy search. It wasn't as easy as get off the plane, here's a map, and here's where it is. It was a difficult search with setbacks along the way. And I just remember, you know, the setbacks were always written in my journal as anticipation of finding my roots, my grandfather's house, to it's not going to happen. And then maybe, maybe, but I'm very guarded. And I remember, you know, all the information we had in the beginning was incorrect. But then I went to the town, which was supposed to be close to my village. And we thought, forget what everyone has said, we're going to ask people. And I remember our driver walking around with this photograph and asking people the name of the village. And everyone is like, why are you searching for the village? You're not going to find it. Or if you find it, it's going to get, you know, you won't get a good reception or whatever. Mm-hmm. But this one guy said, oh, the village, I think is up the road this way, about six miles. And I'm, and Ted, I'm guarded because I've had setbacks. I'm guarded. We drive for about five, six miles, we come to an archway and this old man just sitting at this archway. We show him this picture. And again, I'm guarded because he's looking at this picture and he goes, well, I don't know about the house or the people in the front, but there's a guy in the back. He looks like so-and-so. And I'm like, you're so old, you have no glasses on. And I don't, anyways, I'm guarded. And he gets into our vehicle. We drive to this house. People come out. And it was interesting because as people came out of the house, They shared the photograph and this one woman saw herself in the picture and she said, that's me. Who are you guys? Yeah. So she just sort of said, (laughs) this is me. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, and I had to go, wait, am I hearing this correctly? This is you in the picture. And she goes, yeah, but who are you? So I had to describe where I came from, who I am. And it was my grandfather's older brother's family that I had just found. and. My grandfather left the house and Ted, it was that important to me that I know that nobody was going to do this. I took Ziploc bags with me on the sole purpose that if I find this village, uh, which I found the house, I walked to the fields right in front of it. I scooped up dirt and I brought it home to the family to and to all my relatives to say, here, this is, this comes from our village in India. Here is what we have. So that's the amazing story, wow. but it, it really grounded me with regards to the identity piece because I went to India searching you know, for that Indian part of me, 
it was mm-hmm. always there, but it just needed yeah. to be because it felt like home when I was there. Yeah. See, that's amazing. And that's the kind of that's the kind of thing that comes around full circle. And it's a story that writes itself. And you can't you can't put those pieces together any better. Yeah. And I was going to ask what your expectation was going in and what the comparison was to the actual fulfillment on the other end. Yeah. But yeah. doing that journey of identity and listen, a few years ago, I spit in a tube, mailed it to a company. They ran it through a lab, sent it back. And I found out I was 12% Irish. That <laughs> that was not the journey that, that you embarked on. Yeah. You went through the work of, of discovery, yeah. the work of really the journey that so many go through in just life. And yeah. I think you, if you're familiar with the book, The Alchemist. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> The boy's name was Santiago. Mm -hmm. That journey almost reminds me of that. Mm -hmm. When you mentioned the setbacks, the being guarded and almost getting so close where it's too good to be true. Yeah. Sounds like that's the journey and and the experience that it was. Wow. No, but Ted, I was going to say also that two things. Number one, I also spit in a tube because I thought, okay, I, you know, I found the roots (laughs) and village, but okay. I I need to find out more. And I was like, okay, I'm going to spend all this money just to tell me I'm Indian or is yeah. there something else? And it was interesting because the results, now they updated. And the updated results say that 33 34% of my background is all the way from Nepal through central India, all the way through to the state of Gujarat. So 33%, mm. 34%. Okay, but what about the rest? It goes from Pakistan, Afghanistan to the Persian border and Oman, 60 some odd percent of my ancestors are from that region, the Silk Route. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's amazing that, you know, our ancestors used to be in that part of the world as well. And the other part that I share with people, because people are like, you know, it's great that you found your roots, but ah, you know what, I will never find mine. I'm like, okay, here's the thing. If I would not have found my grandfather's house, there was something that I did find. You know, for example, I've talked to a number of people. One person, for example, said, you know what? My ancestors come from Sicily. We have no idea, you know, any information, but we just know it was Sicily. And we'll never be able to recover anything like you did. And I said, no, no. Have you been to Sicily? And he said, oh, yeah, no, no. I've been there Uh, because I wanted to just go. And I said, okay, but when you were in Sicily... Was there something that connected you to this place, knowing that your ancestors were from here? And he said, well, yeah. And I said, well, you just did the same thing I did. Maybe you didn't find the house. Maybe you didn't find the town, village, or district, but you are home. And if it connected you, that's important. It doesn't mean you have to do exactly what I did. And to him, he was like, okay, that makes a lot of sense and provides me more comfort in this because of the fact that, you know, if it feels like there's something that connects you to this place, mm-hmm. this is part of you as well and who you are. How do we learn to listen to that? I think you have to be open to it. And it actually comes from my first uh, TEDx speech that I did, which was on personal storytelling. But how do you discover the extraordinary in the ordinary? I mean, we live in a life that is fairly ordinary as we seem. Our routine is set and we go through a routine, but embedded in the ordinary are those tremendously extraordinary experiences. And the way that I define it is by using a concept of carpe. So carpe diem sees the day, but carpe Mm -hmm. is how you convert the extraordinary out of the ordinary. Carpe stands for curiosity, 
A is appreciation, R is reflection, P is perspectives, and E is for experience. So think of it this way. If you go through life with a curious nature, your eyes and your mind is open, something's going to stop you. Like you will see something and it's going to be different than what it normally would be. So curiosity stops you. As you start looking at this and it stopped you, you start appreciating it for more than what it is. So you appreciate it. You add more significance and substance by reflecting further. And we all have perspectives. So our perspectives will bring more significance into this. And if you don't capture your story as an experience, your story dies an untimely death. But that's how you find the extraordinary in the ordinary. And I'll give you an example. I carry with me puzzle pieces. So here I am showing one single piece of a jigsaw puzzle. Mm -hmm. If I give you one piece of a jigsaw puzzle, Ted, what can you do with one piece? Not much. Okay, It's ordinary, right? Not much. Mm -hmm. Right before your eyes, I am going to transform this single piece of a jigsaw puzzle into extraordinary, from ordinary to extraordinary. Because this is what we feel like. We feel like that single piece of a jigsaw puzzle. We don't know where we fit in. We don't know what the bigger picture is. But here's how I make it significant and transform it. I have a satchel. And in the satchel are more puzzle pieces. If I give you the single piece, do you realize my puzzle will be permanently incomplete without you? Do you realize how important you are to my puzzle now? Hmm. That's how you make something extraordinary out of ordinary, because it's about reframing it, repurposing it. I've given about 5,000 pieces in the world to date to remind people how important they are to me. And it's amazing because I've got people who have taped it to their mirror. They say it reminds me every morning someone told me I matter. Or yeah. it's traveled in backpacks around the world. It's in wallets. Somebody just sent me a picture of their wallet. They said, you gave me this five years ago. I still have it and it's in my wallet. <laughs> or they come looking for me saying, I heard you give puzzle pieces away. Tell me the story. I need a piece. Right. Yeah. But that's how we connect each other and we are all connected to each other. Simple as that. But that's the extraordinary out of the ordinary. That's amazing. Sam, we're coming to the end of our time because there's so many follow up questions that I'd want <laughs> to jump into. I feel like we've only scratched the surface, but mm -hmm. to continue with the theme of the story mm -hmm. and each being a puzzle piece. Mm -hmm. Because there was color on that puzzle piece. There was some markings on that puzzle piece. And it's just a, a smaller piece of the whole, which makes the picture. But we each have our own markings and our own colors to tell a story. Yeah. What is the story you hope to tell? And, and how can we learn to tell ours? Yeah. And the other thing related to that, though, is no one piece is more important than another. Every single mm. piece has an equal value. I just want people to remember how important they are to other people. I think we get so busy with our lives, so busy with our routines, we forget just our uniqueness, the importance we hold, the fact that we are all living stories and you know, we have things to share with each other. You know, think about it this way. I mean, we're going through the most difficult times right now with COVID and you know, there are people that are genuinely going through a difficult time. And one thing I share is, as you know, I love acronyms, but uh, I said there's a need for us to care right now. And what care means is collaboration, adaptability, resilience, and empathy. 
whether you're an individual team organization, it doesn't matter. Collaboration, we all have something to contribute to each other. We all have something of value, but don't hold on to it. There's a need for us to share and support each other. Mm-hmm. Adaptability means, you know what? We've all had to change. We've all had to shift. We've all had to leave what the status quo and comfort was. So let's embrace that adaptability mindset to see how we can bring this into our life now. Resilience means this is a marathon. It's not over tomorrow, next week, next month, maybe even not even next year, but build the resilience in and make this into a marathon so we emerge stronger. And empathy is showing care and compassion to each other because you don't know what people are going through. Let's have more empathy towards each other and make this into a better place. This is what I've gained and learned out of all of this that brings me to how I need to help and support. And that's where I said earlier, I've been given so much because I need to share. I can't hold on to it. Sam, we are so thankful for you sharing. And we know that you probably have an abundance more to share. So how can our audience and our viewers on YouTube follow up with you, connect with you and stay in contact with some of your stories? Sure. Well, I mean, happy to always have people drop by my website, which is wwwsam T-H-I-A-R-A.com. I've got about 180 blog posts that people could just read and different insights and ideas and thoughts about life. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. So people can always tap in and uh, even reach out if they want to. Awesome. And I'm going to have all those links in the show notes for folks so they can open up on whatever app they're listening to and get redirected right to your sources right there. But Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today and sharing your expertise, your experiences, your story, and your dream. Oh, no, I appreciate it. And one thing I want to leave with your audience is my signature quote that I live by. Everyone's life is an autobiography. Make yours worth reading. You are a living story. There's significance to what you hold. Don't be afraid to share with people, but keep building that autobiography into something worth reading. Yeah, absolutely. Every single day. Sam, thanks so much. And I'm going to recap some of the uh, the nuggets you left along the way too from, from my notes, because I know some people listening are either cleaning, driving the car. They don't always have the pen and paper handy, sure. but stop looking at what I'm doing and start focusing on who I am. When Sam mentioned the, the shift that happened in that mentality and when you look at who you are, instead of worrying, was it a 42 suit or whether it was a 42 small Stop wearing the suit that fits everybody else and build that suit that's tailored to you and how you want to live your life. It comes through reflection and introspection. It comes to the journey. And are you earning a living or are you living and earning? There is a difference between the two and understanding who you are and having that tailored life and the intentionality can lead to living and having an earning with that. And what am I going to learn? Having that mindset, I was going to ask Sam's expectation and perspective in terms of going to India to search for the village in a blurred photo. And what that came about was, he said, what am I going to learn? And so many people put huge expectations on the journey, but not putting a lot of expectation on what they will learn in that lesson. We learn it through our failures. And of course, we learn it through our progress as well. And then Kichari, did I say that correctly? 
<laughs> Kitchity, I'm getting the nod of approval. We are all a blend of flavors. Even though we find out who we are, we could either go on our own journey to our homeland. We can spin in the tube and get the DNA test back. But understanding that it's the blend of those flavors that create who we are and how we express that is the true flavor of our identity. And of course, we all need to care and consolidate and work with each other more and share empathy. Sam, Thiara, thank you so much again for sharing with us today. To the listeners, we appreciate you making it to the end. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate you sharing it with someone that you think will get value from it as well. And of course, be sure to leave us a rating and subscribe so you can get a new episode each and every single week. And let us know how we're doing. It's the only way we can improve. And if you love the episode so much and you want to support the podcast, you can also subscribe to our Patreon page for as little as $1 a month. Guys, thank you so much for the time. And as we always say at the end of the episode, everybody wants the sunshine, but they don't want the rain, but you can't get the pleasure without a little pain. Let's grow.